the First Christian Church of Tiefland brings you the good news. And now, Tom Show. Well, here we are. Fruit of the Spirit, Part 8. Awakening the Gentleness Giant. As we started the last few weeks, let's all start again this week by reciting the these two verses that are up there already for you. All you have to do is read them. Let's begin. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there is no law. Absolutely. Let's pray. Most Holy God and Father above, today as we come towards the end of our lessons on the fruit of the Spirit. On part 8 today we'll talk about goodness. I pray Lord that maybe we we might understand some things about goodness but today I pray that we'll understand a little bit more. A little bit more about this topic goodness and how it affects us and, and how it changes us in the Holy Spirit. And I praise you Lord for the opportunity this morning. For this wonderful blessing of the fruit of the Spirit called goodness. So I pray you'll help us today, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. MVP. What does that stand for? Most Valuable Player. It's usually used in sports, isn't it? How about VIP? A very important person. Usually used for politicians, celebrities, or executives. How about POI? Person of interest, absolutely. Usually used in an investigation. I did. This time I did. Thank you. <laughs> no, how many knows what a VDP is? A VDP. I'll tell you what they are. That's a very draining person. <laughs> BLT. That's a good one. <laughs> you know, VDP. They're the kind who say things that set you on edge. And you're convinced that they are enjoying doing it. They come into your home and say, where did you find that wallpaper? And it's obvious that they're not asking because they want to run out and buy the same thing. They're the kind who come right out and ask, oh, how much weight have you gained, dear? <laughs> or they say, boy, you sure work tired today. And deep down inside, we know that they don't really want to know the comments. And how their comments made us feel. You see, they're all around us. And why are they like that? I've heard their excuses. It's not my fault. That's just the way I am. It's in my genes. I inherited it from my mother or my father. Well, that's the way they were too. You see, we live in a blame game society where we do and know we act are never our own fault. At times I just want to shake people like that and ask them, what about God? What about the Holy Spirit? Why don't you let him into your life to change your attitudes and actions, your life and your personality? Guess what? It can happen. I recall working with the youth group for many years that we often would shout out the phrase, attitude check. At which time the youth would shout back, I guess I don't have any youth workers in here. <laughs> Whenever I'd say attitude check, the kids would say, praise the Lord. We'll try. Attitude check. 
Not too bad for the first time. Better you on your toes, I might ask later. Well, we all need an attitude check from time to time to check our thinking and attitude toward God. I believe that is what we are getting from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. This is an attitude check for our personality. An attitude in Christ as we walk in the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. Now I hope that you have not interpreted these sermons to be a kind of try harder seminar. I'm not saying to you just try harder to be patient or try harder to be more loving or try harder to be more gentle. What I'm hoping for is that we will allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in us, changing and making us into the kind of person God wants us to be. And when that happens, the fruit of the Spirit will be evident in our life. Today, we'll discuss the fruit of gentleness. Here's three keys to having God's gentleness in our life. I think I said earlier, goodness, but that was a couple weeks ago. First, we need to understand exactly what gentleness is. A definition of gentleness. We need to define it for us to truly understand. The Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written was a precise and expressive language. When the Greeks developed a word, they not only gave it a careful definition, but they almost always illustrated it. Now here, this Greek word is Christotes. The definition of gentleness was power under control. And they illustrated it with a picture of a horse that had been tamed. Gentleness to them was a powerful animal with its power completely under control. Think about it. Water that's under control would be water rushing through a dam, turning turbines, generating electricity to light a city. Water out of control would be a flood destroying everything in its path. A disease out of control can devastate the body and kill its victim. But a disease under control can produce vaccines and save thousands of lives. So that is the definition of gentleness. When we think about gentleness, think about power under control, anger under control, emotions under God's control. Think of it as moral excellence in character or demeanor. You know, Jesus never said we couldn't be angry, did he? You know what he was really saying? Be angry. What he said is, be angry and do not sin. In other words, have your anger under control. You know, Jesus got angry. He was pretty angry when he chased the uh, money changers out of the temple twice. One time it says he even took cords and made a, a whip and chased them out. I'd say he was not doing it out of, hey, this is a cool exercise. Ka-ching, No, he was mad. But he was under control. And no time did he ever take the whip to anyone. He just used it to make a loud noise to get him out of the temple. You see, it's power under control. And that's a good definition of gentleness, isn't it? And don't want to, to use that as our example today. What a better example than Jesus. 
And when it comes to gentleness, let's look at some of the demonstrations of gentleness in the Bible. Once again, Jesus is our perfect example. So I want to consider three events in his life that demonstrate the gentleness of Jesus. But as we do, I want you to keep in mind this question. If we had people like these people in our church, how would we treat them? Would we treat them like Jesus did? Or we treat them differently? The first one is found in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and they come to a place in John chapter 4, and it starts out verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now I don't know if you know about it, but the sixth hour meant it was noon. And Jesus had been traveling probably all morning, and it gets to the point, he, they find a well there, and Jesus decides, you know, I'm pretty thirsty. I'm going to sit here and rest. And the interesting thing, then we're going to find out that uh, Jesus sends his disciples away into the town to get some food. And it says in verse 7, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. You see, Jesus is left alone while his disciples went into uh, Sychar to see if there was a McDonald's or a Burger King, you know, pick up some food. You guys are sleeping there. There was no McDonald's or Burger King. Maybe a Wendy's, I don't know. What do we know going on here? Let me tell you a few things going on. The Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. In fact, they, they pretty much didn't like each other. They would do commerce together because it involved money. So we can sell and buy and that's okay, but other than that, we're not going to have anything to do with each other. So going into town to buy food, Jesus understood they'd be okay. So he stayed at the well. Besides, this is going to be a situation best handled by Jesus on a one-on-one -on -one basis. If the disciples had been there, this would have been a very complicated situation. Jesus understood when this woman came out, there's a lot of things going on. In verse 9 says, the woman of Samaria asked him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Again, remember the culture. In that day, a man didn't talk publicly to a woman. And a Jew certainly didn't talk to a Samaritan. And she made it quite clear. I'm a Samaritan woman. So Jesus were a normal Jewish man. He would never have spoken to her. But Jesus is deliberately trying to break down the barriers between them. And not only this, but it's high noon. In the heat of the day. The women came to fetch water in the morning and the evening. And guess what? They never came alone. They always had 
at least one other woman with them. This woman's alone in the heat of the day, so Jesus immediately knows something about this woman. You know what he immediately deduces about this woman? She's an outcast. She's an outcast. You know the rest of the story, how she taunts Jesus, speaks very unkindly to him, yet Jesus responds with patience and kindness and love. And it turns out that she's been married five times, and now she's living with a man who's not her husband. She's guilty. There's no question about it. When Jesus sees her more than just a woman who's been married five times and living with someone who's not her husband, he sees a thirsty, needy person. Now wait a minute. Is he talking about himself as the thirsty, needy person? No. Is it interesting? Jesus stops at the well because he's thirsty and he asks the woman for a drink, but he recognizes this woman is the one who's need and is the thirsty woman. He offers her living water that will quench her thirst, not just for a moment, but forever. At no time did Jesus, other than pointing out that, he, that she had said she had five husbands and had told the truth, no time did Jesus say, You sinner! There's a reason you're out here by yourself in the heat of the day. You nasty woman. Could Jesus have pointed out that he knew she was a sinful woman? Absolutely. But you see, here we have gentleness that was needed and given. Power under control. You know what's pretty amazing about this woman as Jesus talked to her and told her about this living water? Suddenly she was thirsty. She said, where can I get this living water? Who are you? I, I perceive you're a prophet. So on and so forth. And then she leaves. Now, I, I can't help in my mind seeing that she leaves about the time the disciples are walking up. And their thought might have been like, who's Jesus? Why is he talking to that woman? And suddenly, Jesus is more interested in this woman than the food they're bringing. You know what's really great about this woman? She goes back and tells the entire village and the entire village comes out to hear Jesus. What if he'd have told her, you're a rotten sinner, woman. You need to fix your life. How would we treat a woman of that stature in the, that had come into the church? Would we treat her with that attitude? Or would we treat her with the gentleness the power under control, because that's exactly what she needed. She needed what Jesus had to give. Number two, there's a similar story found in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It's a story of a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had sent her in the midst, they said to him, Teach her! This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Ah! But what do you say? And this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down 
and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then those who heard it, being convicted of their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised, her, raised himself up, saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This woman was guilty. Jesus could have judged her harshly. She deserved condemnation. She deserved punishment. She deserved justice. Do you really understand what was going on here? She was caught in the very act of adultery. The law said she should die. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, whoever was there, they bring this woman. They said they caught her in the act. Number one. Did they give her time for propriety's sake to put any clothing on? Chances are they did not. So we don't know if this woman was very, very much clothing on. Maybe nothing. Do you know what the real problem is here? The law says that a daughter should be killed. Now, did Jesus break the law? If he did, we no longer have a Savior. Because then he sinned. What's Jesus do? He gets down and starts writing in the sand. And some people have speculated, what was he writing? Was he writing their names in the sand? Because he says, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. Maybe he was writing their names. You know, I tend to think what he was writing was the law. This is what the law says because they broke the law. They should have never brought this woman before him without also bringing the man. Because they were both to be brought, because both broke the law. And if they only brought one, then it left the other guiltless. Who was the man? Was he an Pharisee of high standing that there's no way we would bring our brother? Jesus might have been leaning down writing the law in the ground for them to see that they broke the law when he said let he who cast who has no sin cast the first stone guess what any of those guys picked up a stone to throw it at the woman would be guilty of breaking the law now what if Jesus would have reacted stir he broke the law but where was he showing any compassion for this woman and how they had just treated her? You know, the other thing, it's really, they said she was committing adultery. Was she? Maybe it's, they were using that, and I'm just speculating, what if they were using that as a ruse? I don't think they were, but what if? You see, Jesus had an opportunity here, and we see that Jesus uses gentleness under control. He treats her gently. He writes in the sand. He shames her accusers into slinking away. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. 
Go and sin no more. You know, Jesus gave her hope. Oh, especially as humiliated as she just was. Jesus treated both these ladies with gentleness. Is that how we would treat them? Maybe even if they didn't come into the church building, when we meet them out there. Sure, they sin. But who's going to take care of their sin? Us or Jesus? So we get the opportunity to treat them with gentleness and teach them about Jesus. And then there's another one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Luke 19. Now you all, you all know this guy is the wee little man. The wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for Jesus he wanted to see. What was his name? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19. As I said, he was a wee little man. And he gets all his self-esteem from taking money from other people. And he is riches and he's dishonest. And Jesus looks up at him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. For I'm coming to dine at your house today. You see, Zacchaeus went to the parade. He knew Jesus was coming by. But Zacchaeus, being a wee little man, he couldn't see over the crowd. And nobody was going to move out of the way for Zacchaeus because they knew he was a chief tax collector. He was a big time chief. He was a rich man. What do you want to see Jesus for, wimp? Get out of the way. You'll just charge me extra taxes the next time anyway. But Zacchaeus knew he needed to see Jesus, so he climbed up in the sycamore tree. Imagine climbing up. It must have been a sight. But Jesus stops. And he looks up. He says, Zacchaeus, come on down. I want to go down at your house. You know what's great about this whole picture? is how Jesus reacted. Because later on we see a change Zacchaeus. Jacchaeus repents. He said, wherever I've cheated people, I will return four times back. There's repentance in Zacchaeus. There's a change in Zacchaeus. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. All because Jesus didn't stop and say, you rotten sinner, Zacchaeus! You thief! You crook! They ought to stone you in the street. No. He treated him with gentleness. He knew Zacchaeus was a sinner. That's why he wanted to go to his house. How many people did Zacchaeus touch? He was the chief tax collector. He had a lot of tax collectors underneath him. And he could convert all them people into being nice and right with their tax duties. How many more people would be touched by the love of Jesus because of one man, Zacchaeus? In each case, Jesus showed gentleness because that's what was needed. How would you deal with people like that if they were in our congregation? Dishonest businessmen, immoral women, a woman who's lived with several men, hoping that each one would be the right relationship. How would we deal with them? How would we judge them? Would we judge them harshly? Would we tell them they're not welcome here? Understand, these people weren't following God. They needed Christ and His salvation. They didn't need run off. Because of their sins. At the moment, here we are talking about we here we are talking about Christians, but those outside of Christ. Jesus pointed out that sin without pushing them away. 
He was interested in their sin, but he did it in such a way with gentleness. Let me suggest that is exactly what the word gentleness is all about. Dealing with people with broken and twisted and mangled lives. Now why don't Jesus condemn them? It's because his motivation is very different. He did not come just to judge, but rather he came to restore. He came to save. And we always know John 3.16, don't we? Oh, we can quote John 3.16 all day long. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How many know that verse? Yeah, sure. All the hands. We all know that verse. Now quote me John 3.17. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you hear that? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We must never forget that the whole reason Jesus came was to seek and to save the lost. So let me ask you, how this gentleness is to be used? How is gentleness to be used? I want us to see how gentleness is vital in this whole process of the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 6, 1, it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You see, it's like a lure, a trap, a web. A person is caught and all wrapped up in their sin. And then he says, you who are spiritual. In other words, those of you who are filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And that's the way gentleness is to be used. It's to be used to restore. We live in a war zone. Do you feel it? Do you sense that you're surrounded by exploding lives and personalities and relationships? Do you hear the cries of suffering? Do you see the mangled lives and relationships all because they made wrong choices? Maybe it's a businessman who made a wrong choice in business. And his integrity is now suspect and he's about to lose his job. Maybe it's someone who made wrong moral decisions and now he finds himself infected with a sexually transmitted disease and his marriage has been destroyed. Maybe it's a woman who decided to abort her child. Now she must deal with the guilt. Maybe it's a young man who made wrong sexual choices and now caught in the trap of homosexuality. Or maybe it's a teenager who made wrong choices about drugs or alcohol. God saying, when you see people who are caught in sin, like the woman at the well, like the woman caught in adultery, like Zacchaeus, he says, when you see people like that, church, be gentle, be careful. Their lives are so fragile. They can be easily broken, but they can also be restored. So treat them with gentleness. Pick them up and hold them gently. Show them the way to repentance. The way back to me because they are mine. I created them. I want them back. More than anything else, I want them back, Jesus is saying. And this goes for Christian and non-Christian. We need to treat them with the right gentleness. Don't run the non-Christian off because of their sin, but reach out to help them to understand. As for the Christian, we need to reach out to restore them to their walk with Christ in the Spirit. 
And there are ways to do that according to the scripture. And some may need to be rebuked, but they be rebuked with gentleness. Some exhorted, but exhorted with gentleness. Some encouraged, but encouraged with gentleness. Listen to these words of prophecy about Jesus found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will guide the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with gently lead those who are with young. A picture that will probably always be fixed in our minds from the Oklahoma City tragedy is the picture of that fireman holding the body of that baby. We'll never be able to forget it, will we? And what's touching about that picture is the obvious gentleness with, with, it, with which that big, burly fireman is holding that little baby. You can see in his face, I must handle this child gently. He's so fragile. But if I hold him gently, maybe he can be saved. You know, I've read a lot of nursery rhymes over the years. One of the most familiar is Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Charles Swindoll says that Little Nursery Rhyme was originally written about people, broken people, people who fell off the wall, people who found their lives smashed. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put them back together again. But God can. He's trying to teach us as a church the lessons of gentleness. That we need to be gentle with one another too. A lady by the name of Violet Slaughter suffered the death of her father in 1969. Before he died, he gave her an antique pitcher and a wash basin that before the turn of the century was used to be found in guest bedrooms. The pitcher would be full of water and the guest would pour water into the basin to wash off at night before going to bed. It was Violet's most prized possession because it came from her parents' home. And it became even more precious to her after her father died. She kept it on display in a very special spot in her home. One day, guests came to visit, and they brought with them an unruly dog that jumped around a lot. And in doing so, it wrapped its leash around the little table on which the pitcher and basin were displayed, and causing the pitcher and basin to fall and break. It was a tragedy to Violet. Her husband says, I watched as she took the dustpan and picked up every piece of that broken basin and pitcher. She kept all the pieces, and every evening she would bring out the ceramic glue and glue pieces back together again. That's what God says we need to do as a church. So we have two goals. First of all, to realize how gentle God has been with us. How many times he could have condemned us. How many times he could have punished us. But gently, time and again, he reaches out and takes us in his arms. Holds us close to his heart. He gently leads us. And second, I want you to realize how important it is we become gentle caregivers. And begin to exhibit the fruit of the spirit of gentleness in our lives. It's a harsh and cold world out there and somehow humanity needs to see that Jesus makes a difference. He brings our tempers and our temperaments and our personalities under control. It's time for us to awaken the gentleness giant within us. 
Maybe you're already a gentle person this morning. Maybe you treat other people with gentleness. And that's great because God created them. He loves them. And more than anything, God wants to restore them. And he wants to see, or He wants to use you and I with our fruit of gentleness to bring them back to Him. This morning, if you're here and you need the gentleness of Christ in your life, we invite you to come. We extend this invitation to you. We encourage you to make a decision for Jesus this morning. Will you come as we stand and sing our hymn this morning, our hymn of invitation? Because you need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need by faith to come forward stepping out. That's the big start, isn't it? A lot of times it's by faith that you're willing to take that first step. And that faith is willing to lead you, wants to lead you to repent. In other words, you're turning away from that sin that so easily ensnares you. You want to give it up. You want to walk in the life of Christ. And your faith leads you to confess the name of Jesus. Faith leads you to be immersed into Christ, baptized, to have your sins washed away, to be filled with God's Holy Spirit. And then you can walk in that path of the Holy Spirit and to watch how the fruit changes you and grows in you.